I am excited about what we're going to cover. It's been a real study, a uh, real pleasure to study and develop. Um, Today's passage is going to shine a light on an area of our relationship with God that should be indispensable, but that we are most often faltering or find ourselves struggling against. When someone does this right, it's a magnificent thing. How many of us know a person who, come rain or shine, seems to be in this beautiful union with the Lord? They have that depth and foundation that makes them trustworthy. And when you, you find yourself looking up to them, I'm blessed to have a few people like this in my life. Emulating this behavior often proves to be the most difficult thing there. But having done some exploration, I found some biblical instructions for how each one of us can grow in this area. I'd like to title today's message, Help My Unbelief. Let's begin by reading the passage, and then we'll explore the test. So if you do have your Bibles, please open to Mark 9, and we're going to go from verse 14 right through to verse 29. I'll be reading from the English Standard Version. And when they came to the disciples, they saw a great crowd around them, and the scribes arguing with them. And immediately all the crowd, when they saw him, were greatly amazed and ran up and greeted him. And he asked them, What are you arguing about with them? And someone from the crowd answered him, Teacher, I brought my son to you, for he has a spirit that makes him mute. And whenever it seizes him, it throws him down, and he foams and grinds his teeth and becomes rigid. So I asked your disciples to cast it out, and they were not able and he answered them, O oh, faithless generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Bring him to me. And they brought the boy to him. And when the spirit saw him, immediately it convulsed the boy, and he fell to the ground and rolled about, foaming at the mouth. And Jesus asked his father, How long has this been happening to him? And he said, from childhood. And it has often cast him into fire and into water to destroy him. But if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. And Jesus said to him, if you can, all things are possible for one who believes. Immediately, the father of the child cried out and said, I believe, help my unbelief. And when Jesus saw that a crowd came running together, he rebuked the unclean spirit, saying to it, You mute and deaf spirit, I command you, come out of him and never enter him again. And after crying out and convulsing him terribly, it came out and the boy was like a corpse. So that most of them said, he is dead. But Jesus took him by the hand, lifted him up, and he arose. And when he had entered the house, his disciples asked him privately, Why could we not cast it out? And he said to them, This kind cannot be driven out by anything but prayer. 
Mark's Gospel gives us the most complete and detailed account of this story. And there are three major questions I'd like us to look at and answer from the text today because I believe that they will help us unpack this section of scripture. They are as follows. What causes unbelief in us? Can we have faith and unbelief at the same time? And what's so significant, significant about prayer and fasting? The transfiguration on the mountain has just occurred. Jesus had taken three of his disciples with him, Peter, James, and John. We believe it was these three in particular because they went on to have the most profound ministries and to suffer for the cause of the gospel. The rest of the disciples, however, remained where they were, and it was clearly known by the people in the surrounding areas. Some scholars even believe that the presence of the scribes in a place so far north was a sign of the concern of the religious leaders with monitoring Jesus' activity. In any case, many would have known that they were there and carried an expectation of seeing supernatural things happen. Perhaps some of them even knew that the disciples themselves had facilitated miraculous healing and cast out demons in the past. If we recall verse 13 of Mark chapter 6, it says, And they cast out many demons and anointed with oil many who were sick and healed them. As such, a father brings his son to them in pure desperation. Their master is not around, but maybe they can help. When we read the account of what the unclean spirit was doing to the boy, casting him into flames and throwing him into the water, all as an attempt to destroy him, it's no wonder that the father approaches them. He must have longed to hear the sound of his son's voice and no longer fear for his life. Let's take a look at the first key point from this narrative. What causes unbelief in us? There was obviously an attempt by the disciples to cast this unclean spirit out, but to no avail. They stayed firmly rooted within the boy. It's not clear what the scribes and disciples were arguing about, but with the increasing hostility towards Jesus, his followers would have taken flack for their failure in this instance. Any chance to needle, undermine, and distress in an attempt to discredit Jesus and those who followed him would have been taken by the scribes. The disciples are in a position where they need to recognize that not everything can be done with the same ease as they have experienced to that point in time. In this situation, they're surrounded by a crowd, possibly many of whom are skeptical of their authority over demons and unclean spirits. As they engage the scribes in argument, their attention would have been turned away from the real need. Debating endless theology and doctrine that sounds intellectually good is not normally feeding the spirit or building our faith. The disciples are not the only ones who deserve scrutiny here. And although theirs is the biggest responsibility, there is another important character we must look into. The father who brought his son to them may appear to be a minor figure in the text until the place where he has this interaction with Jesus. However, when we look at what some of the other Gospels record, it is clear that he plays a big role. He presented his son and begged for help. 
This affliction had been around for a long time. And he would have likely exhausted all of his options to that point in time, trying to see his son made well. When you begin to explore the miracles that Jesus performed, you clearly see an element of faith involved in each instance. Without it, there is no way that anyone can expect anything to happen. Scripture actually says in Hebrews 11 verse 6, And without faith it is impossible to please him. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. We see later in the passage that Jesus actually tries to invoke a response of faith in the boy's father. And through that, God's grace is extended to this man who's reached his wit's end. The way in which Jesus responds after he has learned about the situation adds an extra measure of weight to this passage. Oh, faithless generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Matthew and Luke's Gospels add, Oh, faithless and twisted generation. Jesus has returned from the mountain only to find more unbelief at work in the lives of men he is trained for the ministry. This is perhaps why his rebuke was so harsh. However, I think it's also quite clear that Jesus did not tolerate unbelief in the people around him. Unbelief is a rejection of the grace of God in many ways. We don't trust God to handle the situation the way we see fit. I think it's probably made most difficult by the fact that we try to envision a solution in a natural sense. This is something particularly challenging in this culture, I believe. It's so conditioned us to try and find a resolution on our own that we either turn to the Lord as a last resort, or we may commit it to Him at the outset, but then search for a natural resolution anyway without waiting for His provision. With all of this in mind, we go back to the question, what causes unbelief and how do we counter it? I recently did a study on this topic and found some very interesting results. Basically, unbelief can be grouped into three forms. Ignorance, which is caused by a lack of knowledge. Disbelief, which comes from being taught wrong principles. And natural unbelief which is neither ignorance nor wrong teaching, but simply natural input that's contrary to the truth. We're going to take a look at these, so don't worry if you're not entirely sure what I'm on that. Ignorance is as the word implies, a lack of knowledge. Not knowing what Jesus has promised us, or what his word says that we are through Jesus. This is often the simplest one to deal with, because it just requires somebody to hear the truth or read it. Disbelief. This comes in when we receive a doctrine that is contrary to the word of God. If the guidance of the Holy Spirit is not present, departing from the truth will most certainly occur. We can deviate from the course the Lord intends for us if we begin to place more value on intellect and tradition, more than simple, heartfelt belief in the word of God. This type of unbelief is more difficult to overcome because hearts can become hardened and much less receptive 
But the antidote is still the same. Receive the truth of God's word over the empty traditions of men in order to displace it. Natural unbelief. This is perhaps the most difficult to deal with. And that's because as people, we are often dominated by our physical senses. It's not necessarily wrong, it's just natural. This is likely what hindered his disciples in this passage from seeing healing in the boy. They ministered to him, but when nothing happened, or if he began going into convulsions, they may have been more moved by what they saw than what they believed. We recall our past experiences and use them as a benchmark. If you prayed for someone, or believe for something to happen in your own life, or someone else's, and nothing has changed, it's only natural that you would grow a sense of unbelief. So what can be done to counteract this? It would seem to be something that we're going to be stuck with forever. No. Thank goodness that by the grace of God, we don't have to do we're going to look more closely at the solution a little bit later, so just plant a bookmark in your mind. This takes us to our second key point in the narrative. Can we have faith and unbelief at the same time? At this stage in his ministry, Jesus is known, probably nationwide and further, for his authority and miracles that he performed. Even his presence makes the crowd run over to greet him in amazement. The unclean spirit in the boy came face to face with the Son of God and almost in a last ditch effort threw him to the ground and caused him to have a seizure. This was not uncommon. On the numerous occasions that Jesus came across people who were possessed by demons or unclean spirits, they often revealed themselves to him straight away. There is nothing that a critter that lurks in the dark hates more than to be exposed and have a lot of trauma. Jesus was purity incarnate. And nothing unclean could stay hidden when in contact with him. While I was studying this, I came across an interesting commentary that gave me a perspective which I believe is very poignant in this situation. Satan rages and rides when he knows that his time is short. In our own lives, we might witness opposition becoming stiff, and it may seem like there is no going forward or achieving a victory, but the truth is, it's close at hand. If we look at the example of Jesus in these situations, he does not even seem to acknowledge the problem apart from when he issues his command for it to cease. As we see in this passage, he didn't run to the boy and begin to start praying and rebuking and binding the spirits. How odd. He actually speaks with the Father and begins a dialogue which we will find out is far more important to the solution of the situation than attending to the boy himself. The boy wasn't whom Jesus needed to build up and teach. Rather, it was his disciples and the father of the boy. The father slips his request to him after explaining the situation, appealing to Jesus to have compassion and to help if he can. Almost incredulous, Jesus responds, if he can. All things are possible for one who believes. 
He's pressing on his lesson here. Not accusing or laying fault at anyone's feet, but rather outlining what we require to see our breakthrough. The father then responds with a famous plea, I believe, help my unbelief. The crowd must have noticed that something unusual was happening and began to run forward towards him, probably in an effort to get a better view. All through the book of Mark, we can see that Jesus didn't like very much publicity. And when he was performing miracles, he quickly and concisely commanded spirits out. And this happened in this situation. After it was torn, the boy is left lying on the ground, looking as though he's dead. The crowd that had gathered even thought so. But Jesus reaches down, takes his hand, and lifts him up in his well. When we think back to what the Father said in utter desperation, maybe there are a few of us who don't follow what he really meant. I believe. Help my unbelief. It seems almost contradictory. How can you have both at the same time? The answer, from what I understand, is that it is possible to have a measure of faith and unbelief at the same moment. When we observe the words in this passage, it's clear that these two things can work against each other like weights on a counterbalancing scale. Jesus wanted to spark that mustard seed of faith in the Father and cause him to knock that unbelief out of his heart. By declaring his belief out loud, he made a verbal proclamation that Jesus could work with. Matthew's Gospel gives us a snippet of detail regarding faith. Chapter 17, verse 20 says, He said to them, Because of your little faith, for truly I say to you, if you have faith like a grain of mustard seed, you will say to this mountain, Move from here to there, and nothing will be impossible for you. This analogy of the mustard seed is found several places in Scripture. Jesus uses it to describe the kingdom of heaven, and in other cases such as this one, faith. As I'm sure many of us have heard in the past, a mustard seed is tiny. They look a little bit like a single granule of sand, but what they grow into is quite remarkable. The trees themselves can reach up to 20 foot high, and their branches stretch out nearly as wide. Jesus is telling his disciples, it doesn't take much faith to do a great thing. God has provided the faith we need, and it is our responsibility to eliminate the element of unbelief. We need that seed to be planted in healthy soil, to give it the best chance of producing a result. This is something that we explore that as well. In the meantime, turn with me to Romans chapter 12, and we're going to look at verse 3. I'm quoting from the King James Version here because I prefer the wording and the phraseology. For I say, through the grace given unto me, to every man that is among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think soberly, according as God hath dealt to every man the measure of faith. The measure of faith. I've heard a few biblical scholars point out that this King James Version really hits the nail on the head with this in terms of how it translates. 
Your Bible might read something along the lines of, to every man has been dealt a measure of faith. This implies that God gave us all a different amount of faith. And that's why someone else might see more breakthroughs and answers to prayer as a result. No. Each of us has been given the same amount of faith. And how we use it and exercise and develop it depends on us. I don't know about you, but that gives me some hope. Mm. I'm not bound to mediocrity. When I see someone experiencing a breakthrough and an answer to prayer, I know that they are applying the Word of God to their lives or that they have been exercising their faith muscles much more than I have. Just like a physical muscle, we can work on our faith and make it stronger by practicing living it. Let's start with the simple but vital things. Reading our Bibles and meditating on the words written in them. Applying them to ourselves and recognizing that they are relevant to every situation. The final and now most practical key point that we can take from this passage of scripture today is what is so significant about prayer and fasting? Jesus has cast out the demon and the boy as well, but his disciples are confused. They approach him and ask him why they couldn't cast it out. This gives us an insight. They must have expected to see that boy made well, and when he wasn't, they were puzzled. There may have been an element of ignorance or disbelief involved in the way they took the situation, but more likely, there was a lot of natural unbelief. When they spoke to the boy, perhaps nothing happened at all. Or maybe he might have convulsed and gone into a seizure. If anyone's seen someone having an epileptic fit or something similar, you know it's an awful thing to witness. I don't think it's a stretch to say it would invoke a measure of fear in anyone. Scripture doesn't say whether they tried multiple times or how they attempted to cast the demon out of this boy. But when we put the three passages together from the three main gospel accounts of the story, there are some key ingredients. The main one is the disciples' question about why they could not cast the demon out. Jesus' response in Mark is a little bit cryptic, and so we need to look at the other Gospels for more clarity. Matthew's Gospel gives us a better idea of what he was actually really talking about, because it records more of what he said. We've read this particular scripture, but let's have a look at it again. Then the disciples came to Jesus privately and said, why could we not cast it out? He said to them, because of your little faith. For truly I say to you, if you have faith like a grain of mustard seed, you will say to this mountain, move from here to there, and it will move, and nothing will be impossible for you. It's from this that we can see in Mark, Jesus could actually be talking about unbelief when he says this kind comes out only by prayer. Something I find I get a lot of value from is looking at a couple of different biblical translations. Again, the King James stands out here because it makes the verse more complete by saying, this kind can come forth by nothing but by prayer and fasting. Jesus is presenting it with a solution. Prayer and fasting are a way of humbling ourselves before the Lord. 
throughout scripture, some of the great figures that we read about have used this as a way to draw closer to God. Moses, King David, Daniel, and Elijah, just to name a few. And although many modern biblical translations don't include the word fasting, there were a lot of early manuscripts that did contain it. And I believe it really complements what Jesus is trying to say here. There are times, just as the major biblical figures did, that in certain situations we need to commit ourselves to fast. Prayer and fasting are faith-driven actions which result in that closer communion with the Lord because you have a period of turning your focus onto God. Thus you're built up spiritually. Jesus himself fasted right before he began his ministry. The Bible also mentions that the Pharisees fasted and John's disciples fasted and that they questioned Jesus' disciples were not fasting. Jesus' response in Matthew 9, 14 to 15 was, can the wedding guests mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them? The day will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them and then they will fast. This is perhaps a little clue into the fact that the disciples weren't practicing all the principles that they should have. But the reason was, Jesus was still around. Nevertheless, Jesus wanted to make them aware of the importance of this action for the future. Throughout the book of Acts, we see evidence of how the apostles eventually put this into practice as Saul broke through the curve. As a matter of fact, they often did it before making important decisions or sending out their fellow missionaries to different places. Prayer is one of the driving forces behind an effective life lived for God. Jesus modeled a constant prayer life, and it's evident in Scripture. Mark makes numerous mentions of Jesus seeking a quiet place to pray. Fasting is simply a tool that we can use to increase the volume of our prayer life. Because we're substituting the time that we would ordinarily spend doing something else and instead use it to focus on our communication with God. Ephesians 6.18 says, Pray at all times in the Spirit, with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert, with all perseverance, making supplication for the saints. During such a time, we draw near to God and it is our opportunity to hear from Him and to speak to Him. In fact, it's often better to spend more time listening than speaking. Because prayer is not just simply making your requests known to God, but it's communication. It has to be a two-way process. I remember just after I arrived in the country, and I was wondering what my next move would be in terms of career and opportunities. I took a couple of days to pray and fast, and asked the Lord for some guidance. In short, the result was so incredible, and it is quite honestly set me up for the rest of my life with a host of opportunities that I could pursue as a result. It wasn't a pleasant experience. I only stretch of the imagination. And there's a lot more that I understand about it now than I did then, but God honored my actions and really blessed me. There are a lot of different types of fasting. It doesn't simply mean going without food and drink. 
as a matter of fact. There are probably much more practical ways of fasting that we can use today and spending our time in communion with God. Some big ones could be our phones and our days. Imagine if we just had them turned off or out of sight and mind for a period of time. We can truly deepen our prayer life if we cut out distractions. The Bible teaches us to be still and know that He is God. And that God speaks to us through the glory of creation. I remember seeing my uncle, who's a very godly man. And he would just take a little bit of time to sit and be away from everyone each morning with his Bible and allow the Holy Spirit to minister to him. God speaks to each of us, but can we get him over the multitude of distractions? Disciplining our bodies and going through a time of passing by the delicacies, like what Daniel did, teaches this flesh, this body, that it is not in control. That we will simply not give it what it wants, when it wants it, but we will practice living according to the spirit rather than the flesh. Romans 8 verse 5 says, For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh. But those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. As we think back to the, two, the different types of unbelief that we can have, we know the answer for these, the main two, for the first two, ignorance and disbelief through long teaching. These can be countered by hearing or reading truth found in God's Word. Romans 10, 17 says, So faith comes from hearing, hearing through the word of Christ. Natural unbelief, however, this is the one that needs the big guns. Committing to prayer and fasting strips us back to the base. And from there, God can build up. If anyone is finding that they have unbelief which has come from a place of seeing or experiencing things contrary to what God has promised us through his word, the truth is, this word is powerful and relevant to each of us personally. Consider taking some time to go through a period of fasting and prayer and getting stuck into it. I'd like to share a story I heard which shows us an example of a person who had an unwavering trust in the word of God. I believe it was Smith Wigglesworth, but I don't recall where he was preaching at the time. Smith was renowned for healing occurring at his meetings, and often before he began a service, he would call on someone to step forward to receive healing as a way of introducing his message. There was great success and miracles occurred most of the time. On one occasion, there was a lady in the service who had a far developed cancerous growth in her stomach, so much so that she looked pregnant. Yet it got to the point where she was so weak that she couldn't even stand on her own. Two friends had brought her because they'd heard about these miraculous healing ministries that had occurred at Wigglesworth meetings. And so before the sermon began, they took her down to the front, one on either side, holding an arm to keep her upright. Smith saw her there. And not moving from behind the pulpit, he prayed over her, or rebuked the cancerous tumor, something simple, and then said to her friends, let her go. 
The friends paused for a few seconds because the woman was very weak and they didn't think that she would be able to stand. But then they obeyed and let her go. The woman immediately fell flat on her face because there was no strength in her. The congregation gasped and stirred and there was a murmur of discomfort through the church. The woman's friends picked her up quickly and made her go to the back. But Smith stopped them. Again, he said to them, let her go. The ladies were now in a difficult position. They had just seen their friend fall the first time. And so they paused for a little longer before obeying the instruction on Smith. For a second time, the woman felt flat on her face, grimacing in pain as she hit the ground. The congregation was now in a total state of confusion, murmuring all around. The ladies picked their friend up and were about to leave once more before Smith, who had held his position, said again, but louder, let her go. This time a man in the congregation stood up out of the pew and shouted, leave her alone, beast. Smith said the words again, loud enough, let her go. Looking around, and now very visibly shaken, the ladies held their ground for even longer before they finally released their hurting friend, expecting to see her fall down and cry in pain once more. This time, however, something like water seemed to flow out under the woman's dress, and the tumour that was so visible disappeared. I believe witnesses said that it fell to the ground. She stood there in strength with no need of support, totally healed. Could have heard a pin drop. It begs the question, what would each one of us do in a situation like that? My gosh, by the second experience of seeing that lady fall on her face and wince in pain and discomfort, the crowd turning against us, I don't think there'd be a single drop of faith left in us. That experience would serve to be a bitter memory and be a stumbling block for the rest of our lives. You see, Wigglesworth might have felt all of those emotions and been tempted to back down and accept defeat, but instead, he chose to believe the constant, immovable fact that God is good and his word is true. What an example of someone taking the word of God and studying <coughs> I'd like to invite the band up, please. As we conclude, I want us to reflect on some of the things we've studied from the text today. It's been a difficult one. All of us have a measure of unbelief at work in our lives. And it may very well be hindering some of our needs from being met. When we look at how Jesus dealt with the boy's father, it's clear that he had grace with him. He didn't condemn his unbelief, but he certainly didn't jump in and solve the situation without requiring the father to have a measure of faith. In many cases, the father's response might be one that we also use. I believe, Lord, but please help the parts of me that don't believe. All of our unbelief needs the same treatment, prayer, communication with our Heavenly Father, and renewing our minds with the Word of God. If anyone here is struggling with something that looks immovable, I'd encourage you 
take that little bit extra commit to fasting in one way or another. Spend the time that you'd be maybe eating or watching the telly or something and go and crack open the Bible. Pray and ask the Lord for an answer. He loves to answer prayer. There's anyone here who says, yes, I actually relate to the voice, Father. And I feel like simply saying, help my unbelief. That's a great place to be. Come forward to the front while we're in worship. And let's get the faith that each of us has stored inside of us sparked. Sometimes I picture it a little bit like the kickstart on a motorbike. If anyone has experienced trying to start some troublesome energy with a kickstart, you know it takes a couple of good cranks to get it going. But it's really rewarding when that bursts into life. I'm going to pray. Father, we thank you for your living word, which is a solid foundation of truth and goodness. Thank you for the way it restores and renews our hearts and minds. I pray for each one of my brothers and sisters gathered here today and ask that you would ignite a spark of faith in each one of us. We live in a world with such great needs around us and have our own needs as well. You have given each of us access to the vast and infinite supply of blessings through your Son, Jesus. Hebrews 4, 16 says, Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive and find grace in help in time of need. We confidently approach your throne of grace this morning, Father, and ask that when we have a need, Please come forward if you want to receive prayer. I really encourage you to find someone because there's a lot of value in praying together. There are quite a few people.